podcast Island. The story of how this culture, this world, this island, the place we now know as New York, came to be. My name is Chance Kelly, and I look forward to you saying, Wow, history is cool. Review Episode 1, Henry Hudson, 1609 to 1611. Good morning, Chance. Good morning, yeah. Yeah, it's afternoon here in Scotland, but it's still morning in New York where you are. How are you this morning? Fine. I'm a morning person. How are you? I'm doing fine. Listen, Chance, we've now done five episodes on this Henry Hudson guy. Why don't we give our audience a quick overview of what Henry has been up to? Yeah, let's do that. So after two voyages of discovery in the service of the English, Hudson is hired by the Dutch East India Company in 1609 to try to discover the Northeastern Passage. Henry Hudson, Englishman, shall about the 1st of April sail in order to search for a passage by the north around the north side of Nova Zembla. But something, a mutiny or a threat of a mutiny, makes Hudson change course. And so the half moon goes west, across the North Atlantic, searching for the Northwest Passage, or perhaps other opportunities. They finally give up and turn west again to Nova Scotia for some repairs, a bit of trade, and a bit of a skirmish with the natives. And they continue to go south until they hit the coast again to the area of the Delaware Bay. And then from there, they start working their way northward, checking every inlet they can find until they find the New York Bay. Hudson sends junior officer and ship's translator John Coleman with four of the Dutch crewmen in the shallop, a large rowboat, out past the Narrows on a sounding mission. And in the skirmish that erupted, the marauding Algonquins would unleash a fierce storm of stone point arrows, answered by a devastating retaliation of musket fire. And amidst the Algonquins' hasty retreat, the four gruff Dutchmen set their long guns down on their knees and stared at their mission leader Coleman, now compromised, with one of those arrows lodged in his throat. Hudson would have been challenged to stay focused while reciting the Lord's Prayer over the makeshift ceremony. The late summer weather was idyllic, and the ocean air invigorating. But Hudson's situation was anything but. The day after burying Coleman, the Half Moon is visited by even more canoes, which could not have done much toward easing the minds of this tightly wound crew. On the ninth, when more natives come alongside the Half Moon, ostensibly to trade, and while no provocation seems apparent, Jewett reports that they perceived their intent nevertheless and use that as justification to abduct two of the Algonquins. Now, these natives managed to escape soon after. Then Hudson sails up the river to where Albany is now. And once there, it becomes obvious that this is a river, that this is not a passage to Asia. So they turn the half moon around and to England, to Dartmouth, not to Amsterdam. However, needless to say, the objective that they actually sent Hudson up there to pursue the navigation of the Northeast Passage to Asia over the top of Russia was certainly not accomplished. So, yeah, we've covered a lot in the first five episodes. Um, do our listeners have any questions about Hudson at this point? 
Yes, they did. And we are very grateful for their emails and their comments. We can't answer everything, of course, but there are a number of very good questions. So we got this email from Lance and he writes that he has a couple of questions about Henry Hudson. And his first question is, is about Hudson's early life, as there is no mention on the show of that. And he's wondering about Hudson's educational background. And he asserts that surely somebody of such bold character and mercantile cunning must have been well educated in the Netherlands. So his question is, what kind of education did Henry Hudson have? Good question. It is a good question. We know he was married. We know that he, his wife was named Catherine, that he had three sons named Oliver, John and Richard. Now, what we can say about Hudson's education is therefore he was probably of a reasonable upbringing middling to higher and that means that he went to school in london that he learned to write there and he joined as a ship's cabin boy and was quite experienced as a sailor working his way up to the level of captain by the turn of the century around 1600 but that is actually all we know it's kind of odd because as we move forward in the story there are some other characters, and it's not it's not about it being more recent, but just just for instance, one that's coming up very soon. We know a lot about, and he's he's a Dutchman, whereas Hudson was an Englishman. It has always amazed me how little is known about this guy. The main reason for that is not that nothing was written down in the 16th century but because many of the records have been lost. Now, we all know what happens when your uh, grandparents die and the house needs to be cleared out and there's a lot of papers there. So what do you keep? What do you throw out? And it's like that. So private papers are less likely to be saved than um, institutional papers. Right. And in those days, the only hard drives that existed was a, a trunk somewhere with a bunch of papers in it. And those hard drives off, often disappeared. Well, yes, they did. The other hard drive that they had, of course, was people's memory. So it's an oral tradition of handing over, telling stories and all of that. This ties in with what we know about Hudson's journals. And again, we don't have the handwriting, uh, the manuscripts of those journals. Um, we know that when he stepped off the ship in Dartmouth, that he very likely took his own journal with him. Now, that would have been a draft. The usual practice was for someone like Hudson to make a clean copy, a neat copy of whatever he had written. But then you would do that with pen and paper in the proper way. Now, on a ship, you may have paper, but you're not going to get your uh, pot of ink out there with a, when there's a storm out there that would toss your ship all over because the ink would be on the on the on the ceiling so it's stuff like that that you need to take into account now henry's journal or a copy of that made its way to amsterdam the east india company had a copy of his journal because johannes de laat writing in 1625 writes about it and he uses hudson's journal in his book which is a description of the West Indies, as the area in general was known. So in some way, the copy made it to Amsterdam. For other journals of Hudson's voyages, we can rely on a publication that was prepared by the Reverend Samuel Purchase in 1625. 
and Purchase may have been the one that made cuts to the journal. So when Jewish Journal, of course, which is also published by Purchase, um, when Jewish Journal does not include certain weeks of his sailing, that may not actually mean that Jewish didn't make any notes or changed anything that is in there, but actually Samuel Purchase may have made those changes. It may have been edited after after the voyage. Is what you're yes, it, there may have been cuts after the after the voyage, and that actually again is a very likely practice. The problem is that once something is printed, there is no need for anybody to keep the manuscript. You toss it out, as we do with with drafts of books of of proofs that we have of the books that we publish. You at some point, if there's too much paper around. You throw the whole stuff out, or you use it to light a fire. Right. The other thing to keep in mind is that, that the information that, that was really in, important to these groups and companies was the information that could potentially lead to profit. And if it didn't lead to profit in some way, or if it in some way confused the the methods of getting to that profit, they, they very likely might edit that, that portion out. That's entirely correct. Good. Some more questions? There are more questions, and I should say that Lance, who uh, submitted this question about the education of Henry, uh, also submitted the second question, and we'll get to that later. So there is another question. Uh, Chance, do you want to read that one? Are either of you related to Hudson or anyone in this history? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think I'm related to Hudson, and I don't think Yap is related to Hudson. Are you related to Hudson Yap, as far as you know? Well, my family comes from um, one of the southern provinces in the Netherlands, and I've traced back the uh, the family tree, the genealogy, to about 1800, and that's as far as I've got. It's it's unlikely at that point in time that anybody in my family came from England. It's they're far more likely to have come from some some of the German states in the late 18th century, moved over the the border to the Netherlands, and that's it. Right. Well, no, I'm not related to Hudson, as far as I know, in any way. Uh, but I am related to uh, another uh, figure who comes into this story much, much later by the name of John Kelly, who was one of the first Catholics elected to U.S. Congress. He was born in 1822 in, in the section known as Five Points, which is the Lower East Side of New York City. Uh, and he was a very interesting and very influential character in a lot of ways. And I, I look forward to getting to that portion of the story. But that's that's 200 years hence uh, and several seasons away. But yes, I, I am. I do have family in this story. And I, I appreciate you asking about that. Um, and there's another question here. Someone who lives on Staten Island asks why that island didn't become Hudson's stopping point. And the second question there is, what was so great about New York before the city was there? Shall I take that one? Yeah, ask the bleed. So it's clear that once he arrived in the lower New York Bay, beyond Sandy Hook, he tried to figure out which way to go. So they sent out a sloop. Now, Arthur Kill, as it was, as it is called now, um, is not the most obvious way to go. In that whole process of making a reconnaissance, charting out topography, John Coleman was killed. 
And it's clear from the Journal of Jewett that Coleman was buried at a point that they named Coleman's Point. Now, there are several candidates for that. And actually, one of them is Staten Island. What we should keep in mind here is that the descriptions that Jewett gives of specific locations, a point in this case, they are not very specific. And historians in the past have made assertions as to what point Jewett is referring to. The problem is that the topography has changed. There have been storms, landslides, and all of that. So what Jewett called a point may not actually be a point there anymore. A coastline is constantly shifting. Now, your second question, what was so great about New York before the city was there? And that is, in three words, location, location, location. The big thing about New York, about Manhattan, is that it sits as the entrance to one of the main rivers going into the hinterland. It's In that sense, it's the same as the St. Lawrence River or the Delaware River or the Chesapeake River. It sits at the right point. And the Hudson River goes straight north for quite some time. And there, where it's joined by the Mohawk River, it provides one of the very few avenues to go actually into the hinterland. And that's obvious also if you look at the Indian trade routes that there are. And that's why the the Erie Canal was at that location 200 years later, after Hudson. So it all comes down to location. That is what made New York. That is what made it a port for the Dutch as an entrance to the hinterland where the fur trade was. That was what became important later on in the 17th and 18th century when they grew corn there and and other food produce that was subsequently transported to the Caribbean and to South America. And that's why once it had become a hub for transport, New York became the hub for with the Erie Canal too, for the, with the railroads, subsequently with air traffic. So it really has to do with location becoming a, a, a hub and building on that. So what is important about New York, what makes New York great, it's location, 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 and all the people going there. Yeah, and I always think it's very interesting that the, the geographic situation of Manhattan Island, and I mean specifically the southern tip of Manhattan Island, was it was also important because it was protected by Staten Island and by the the hub of Brooklyn that sticks out uh, across from Staten Island. It was a very well-guarded, protected, deep bay. The southern tip of Manhattan Island was important before Hudson even got there. There was an Indian path that went right down to that southern tip that was already well established as a very advantageous fishing spot. And the Native Americans had been utilizing that for for a long, long time, well before any Europeans showed up. And as we mentioned, Sapacanacan is not far away from that location, but the trajectory and the, the development of New York is defined largely by the fact that that tip is at the foot of a very deep natural harbor that's also very well protected by land masses. Good. 
Meg writes to us, and first of all, she compliments us on our undoing fantastic work. And then she asks about Pierre Minuit, who's mentioned in the first episode, and she wonders whether we are correctly pronouncing it, because she's never heard it as such. Uh, and she goes on to ask about the Walloons as the original settlers. Chance, do you want to take this one? Yeah, uh, Pierre Minuit ends up being one of my favorite characters in this whole epic story. And when I refer to the epic story, I'm specifically referring to from 1609 to 1909, because that's what we will be focusing on in total in this story. And I knew very little about him when when we started uh, sketching this thing out. And to me, he's one of the most compelling characters. It It is Pierre Minoui. He was, well, he he grew up in in Vessel, Germany, but his family had emigrated from what was known as the Spanish Netherlands during the lead up to the Eighty Years' War. And these people were what we would call Belgian today, but they were French speaking and they were Protestant. They were Calvinists. They were reformed Protestants. They were. What would you call them? Yeah, they were Calvinists, right? Yes, they were Calvinists, um, and they were Reformed, obviously, as they're Calvinists. So these are basically um, refugees from the southern Netherlands, the French-speaking part of the southern Netherlands in the 1570s and 1580s. Now, like the refugees from the northern part of what is now Belgium, like places like Antwerp, they went to many other places in both in the northern Netherlands, Amsterdam in particular, but also to places in England, Norwich, as well as to several cities in Germany, Emden and Wesel, for instance. So this is these are international refugees, but they are connected to each other. They are families extended families that flee together. Now, we shouldn't think of this as a complete route. Usually they had the opportunity to sell their house and move away. And they did so because um, they did not want to become Catholic. So that that is what makes them refugees. What you do have um, in the 1580s, 1590s is this and later on as well, is this growing sense of being a separate community and seeking a place where you would be free from Spanish persecution. And that's what in the 16-teens and 1620s makes the Walloons important. And we'll get to that in later episodes as well. And actually, I should say that the same applies in some way, in a slightly different way, to the pilgrims as well. And we'll have something to say about them too, because they are so comparable to the balloons in many respects. Charles Effenepauze, we'll be right back after the break. Now, okay, <laughs> that's why we say often that this story is complicated, and it is. And Meg also asks why she was never taught any of this. And I think that's a really good point and good question, because I wasn't taught any of it in school either. And I think part of that is because a lot of these people are not English speaking. I think that that reason alone is one of the reasons a lot of them get 
extracted or, or just passed over in our educational system. And when I say our, I'm referring to the United States for the most part. These, these are French-speaking Protestants. They are Dutch-speaking Protestants. And then they are also from all other religious and, and cultural areas. But that's why I call this our lost history, because it's a pocket that gets left behind in many ways. The pilgrims, I'm glad you mentioned the pilgrims, because that's one of the reasons I think it gets left behind. The pilgrims came, should we call them pilgrims or should we call them uh, separatists? The ones who well, came they're... in 1620. They're both the the, the travel to um, the to the Americas actually made them pilgrims, but they are separatists in the sense that they did not want to conform to the Anglican Church as it was developing in their time. Okay, so they were fleeing because of the Anglican Church, which is different than the Catholic Church. It's very it is. It is. But I mean, that's an important distinction and it's an important point that these were Pierre Minoui and the Walloons that followed him were the Manhattan pilgrims and they are they are forgotten about nobody almost nobody knows about them and I think that's really important to recognize and I, I hope that we're shedding some light on that as we go forward in the story but yes good question Meg thank you very much Okay, do we have another question yet? We do. Lance has another question. Okay. And that question is a little more loaded. And he says it's connected to the most recent episodes. And he points out that there are many different religious influences in Manhattan's early history, depending on which group or settlers merchants we're talking about. So he's wondering which is the most influential in the development of the heart and soul or the culture of New York, young New York City. Um, and that's a good question. And actually, it touches on, on points that we will cover in episodes that are still to come. But for now, let me just say that the balloons that we mentioned are Calvinists. The subsequent Dutch colonists are also for the most part Calvinists. So the, while there is a mix, including, for instance, Lutherans from the German states, the dominant culture, the dominant religion is Calvinism. And that is in theological ways, very similar to what is happening in New England. So that's the answer to your question, Lance. It's Calvinism that becomes important. Now, the problem is that we are talking here about religion in the 17th century, which is for the 21st century mind, very difficult to understand. So we will go easy on that. And we need to because it is actually quite complicated. To, and also, it's baffling sometimes from our modern perspective to see how Religious differences can lead to such fallout. It's such a, a different way from which those of us that are religions in our times see what is happening. Okay, Charles, this next question is for both of us. And this is someone writing that, uh, that thinks that historians are stuffy and kind of boring. But it points out that the conversations that we are having with our experts sound like we could just be chatting over a beer. So are we guys... That's me, historian guy, 
um, special? Or do you, the question asker, need to rethink what a historian is? Let me take this one. Yes, yes, I do think you need to rethink what a historian is. And history isn't stuffy, isn't kind of boring, because it's people. It's people and their stories that we're talking about here. It's individuals who are making their choices within the parameters of their own time. And those those decisions that they make have consequences that reverberate even now. Not all of those decisions, but many of them do. So history impacts on the present. So that's the main point. And then second point here is whether historians have a beer and are chatting. Well, they always do. Most professional historians that I know that are working in this field of New Netherland and early America, most of them know each other. They regularly meet at conferences and uh, on other occasions. And of course, conferences are to present research. So you give a paper, there are questions, and you answer politely or not so politely as the case may be. There are differences of opinion that we try to talk about in a slightly detached way because we don't want this to get in the way of being friendly with each other. And actually being friendly also means that you focus on the arguments rather than on anything else. But after the presentations, the sessions at the conference are over, many of those historians go out for a beer together, go out for a meal together, and that's where they really get heated up and where you talk to people about actually what makes you interested in this. And you exchange information, you exchange insights. It's a very vibrant intellectual exchange that takes place. And it's one of the things that this whole um, pandemic that we are still in has sort of put to a halt. I haven't been to New York for two years now, and I really miss it. And I would love to have another conference in New York, whether up in Albany or in the city, and be able to go out with colleagues, have a beer or a glass of wine, as the case may be, and talk about our stuff. Most of these people, most of these researchers I've known for, for many years, and many of them are good friends. So we get together when we can just to have a beer. And, and of course, when you know people for, for decades, you ask about other things as well. But the starting point always is the shared interest, the fascination that we share about the past, about history. I want to add something to that yap, and I'm that's a really good question. I'm glad that this listener recognized that not, not just yap, but all of our historian scholar guests, our historical excavators, as we call them, are very interesting, engaging people. And I think that has to do with a number of things, foremost among them being their passion for this history and for the history that they study, because they, they don't just study the history that we study on this show. They Each of them, we bring in specific scholars and historians based on an area of expertise that they may possess. And we talk to them in order to try to drive our story along and support our story. I also think it speaks to the fact that the characters define the history. And if, to me, if you look at history through the eyes of the characters, through the eyes and the minds of the characters, it, it becomes, it just opens up and becomes so much more vivid and interesting and meaningful 
because the decisions made by these people are what literally defines our history and why we're here. And if you understand what's going through the mind of a Calvinist in the Spanish Netherlands in the, in the lead up to the 80 years war and the fact that you're going to be either enslaved or killed or all of your property is going to be taken from you or you'll never own property or you any money that you have may be taken from you and your children may not be able to live free that that is very powerful and it, it takes it, it then it really rips it off the page and puts it in motion to me anyway and that's that's that has a lot to do with why I'm very passionate about this story and when I connect with guys like certainly like yeah but what when we connect with these other scholars and historians it's it's exciting and it's exciting when people have like-minded notions and ideas and visions for this for this story i also think that this is a really novel way if i do say to present history to people i know that lance has sent us messages before lance is in high school in fact lance started listening when i think he was a freshman in high school um that's that's really encouraging to me because the fact that a kid in high school, and by the way, Lance has a little brother who's in elementary school or middle school who listens with him, okay? And they really love it. One of the comments they said a couple months back was, I feel like I can smell the story. And that's really good. Because um, I could never smell a book in, in history class what we used to call social studies back, back in middle school. And I think that is quite essential. The problem, the problem with history education is you really need to make it vivid. You need a narrator. Your teacher needs to be able to talk to you, talk to the entire class for 45 minutes with a compelling story. And if he does that, then you, he grabs the student's attention in such a way that they will not forget what is being told. If you just drone on, then history does become one damn thing after another. And yeah. that's what it shouldn't be. Now, teachers don't have a very enviable position. They are not, they may have been drawn to history by storytelling. But the current curriculum doesn't always allow them to indulge in that way of teaching history. But you need to make history come alive. And I'm very glad to say that there are in New York institutions that actually provide learning packages that tools for teachers. The New Netherlands Institute up in Albany is one of them, but also in the city the New York Historical Society, the Museum of the City of New York, um, houses like the Bound House in Flushing, all of these are preparing materials for teachers to use in the class and to make this history come alive in a way that actually appeals to the students. And that's another important point here. This history is not long ago and in a faraway place. If you go out, into the streets of where you live, you can see history everywhere. Just notice how old some of the buildings are. If there is a year on a building, it tells you something. If there's a memorial stone of some kind, 
that was put there by people for a purpose. Uh, history is out there on the streets only if you open your eyes. I was out this weekend on Sunday. My wife and I took our daughter for a pizza tour, a historical pizza tour. And on the way up north out of the downtown area, we stopped by um, Fifth Avenue and 29th Street. Now, that's called the Marble Collegiate Church. And that that was relocated there in the 19th century. But it was relocated from South William Street. And what was on South William Street was established in 1628 as the Dutch Reformed Church of New Netherland under Dominic Jonas Michaelis. That is serious history because that church on Fifth, Fifth Avenue, 29th Street was built back when that was not even established section of the city. And that remains to this day. And there are other places in the cities too where you can actually feel history and it becomes palpable. Um, the oldest house in New York City is the Wyckoff House in Brooklyn, for instance, 1650s it is. There is a farm near Inwood Park, the, Dyke, the Dykeman House. The Lefferts House in Brooklyn is the same kind of thing. So it's it's these places where you can feel history. And that's also where such things as a replica of a ship comes in because that makes history palpable too. There is a replica of Hudson's Half Moon that used to sail on the Hudson River. It's now in the Netherlands. There's a, a, a replica too of the ship that Block built in the early 16-teens, the Onrust. And that I think is still based in Schenectady at the moment, in upstate New York, but it does sail the Hudson River. So it's, history is everywhere. And we'll eventually mention many of these places that are still around and where you can feel the past. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. So, Charles, we also have some reviews on those podcast platforms, and not all of them are positive. So this guy says, get on with the story. Storytelling is truly an art. We're listening to a podcast. Get on with it. Quit previewing. Let's go. Okay, shall I respond? <laughs> Let's respond to that. All right. Well, you're not wrong. Um, that's from Jay Fernandez. Oh, oh, you're not wrong, and we thank you for the comment. Um, as we we did talk about a little bit, we we examined in the first five episodes of the podcast, we examined Hudson from a lot of different angles, and we do a lot of looking back on Hudson. So. In that sense, you're right. We weren't able to quite get on with the story as much as we would have liked, but we didn't know how else to do it because there's a lot, there's a lot of things to consider about Hudson, um, and we didn't know how, how else to do it than to re-examine him a couple of times. I can tell you that <laughs> from episode six on, we really do get on with the story a lot a lot better i would say uh once we once we've left hudson behind do you agree yet i agree with that and let's keep in mind that the first five episodes are also the introduction to what is going to be a long series of episodes on dutch new york so we needed to explain about the dutch but we also needed to explain what our take on history is and i should add here that the narrative strands mostly come from chance and I'm I'm the historian 
So in and actually it it is a very fruitful collaboration that Chance and I have because he asks different questions than a trained historian would and I provide information of that but it's this tension between Chance is storytelling and my professional historianship that makes this podcast what it is. Now there's another um comment which um has to do with the sound and all of that. So there is a comment about less sound effect. Why does the fire in episode three roll on for 15 seconds? And you can't even hear Chance speaking at that point in time. What do you think, Chance? Well, I, I think that's also a, a totally valid comment. And obviously, this is a podcast. So the he, the audio, what listeners hear is the most important thing. So again, I thank you for that comment. We thank you for that comment. And all I can tell you is we, we're figuring out the audio as we go along. And there's an audio engineer who takes everything we record and mixes it together with effects and our voices and so forth. And we don't always get it exactly right. The other thing I can say is I, I listen to it a couple different ways. Sometimes on my really good headphones that I'm wearing right now, sometimes on my Beats pill, and sometimes in the car, and then sometimes with my little earbuds. It sounds a little different each way. So what I can say is, again, we really appreciate this comment. Keep keep letting us know how it sounds, because we want it to sound as, as good as it can across the board. The, the problem is it can't ever sound perfect on every in every format that, 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 we're, that you or we are listening in. But we like to hear those things, so thank you. Mm. Now, it does make a difference where you listen to something. If I listen to a podcast in the car with the background noise of going over the road and the engine and all of that, it, it that really obliterates any subtle sound effects that there may be. So there is there it's a fine art to actually get it exactly right for every possible location where somebody may listen. So if you want less sound effect, I'd, I'd say, actually, if you listen to it in your car, you won't get that feeling anymore, that it, there is too much of that. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, what else? We've got one more here. And that is a question that actually relates to your voice, Chance. This guy asks, why, does you, why do you laugh all the time? It sounds like very bad acting. It ruins the amazing story of Manhattan. It's unlistenable. Well, shall I respond? Yes, let's. Well, we cannot afford not to respond to any anybody who actually takes the effort to send us a comment right. like that. That's from Br Bradalbetta, I believe. I, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Um, listen, totally valid uh, comment and question. And I, I'm not going to apologize for laughing, but it is sort of the way I view the history, at times it's so ironic that it makes me laugh. At times it is just literally ridiculous, some of the things that, that happen. Um, but it also speaks to my passion for it. And I have a great passion for this overall epic story and for the, the, you know, the integral history of New York. And it's more about just it being kind of fun for, for, to examine it and re-examine it. But if the laughing bothers you, I you know, I certainly can try to tone that down a little bit because again, you're you're not wrong. 
we want to get on with the story, as one of the other reviewers said. And we trust me that Yap and I and everybody else involved in doing this podcast are are uh, intently focused on doing that. So we will continue to keep that in mind and keep keep this voyage moving along. Okay, now let's end then with a final remark, which is much more upbeat. This is M. Joe Raymond, who writes, Must listen! Such an amazing podcast for anyone living in New York City, anyone interested in New York City, or anyone interested in U.S. history. Amazing storytelling, and so, so well-researched and informative. So fun! I like that. Thanks, M. Joe Raymond. That's uh, really nice to hear. I'm glad you think so, and... All I can tell you is keep listening because it, it, there's a lot more where that came from. But really, really nice to hear that. Thank you so much. Okay, did so, we have some other uh, comments or reviews to talk about? Well, let's get to the final question then. Okay. And this is one for you. And that is another uh, from an, a review on one of the the, 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 the the podcast platforms. Will the whole podcast focus on Hudson? That's what I thought too. Yeah, we've been going on about this guy a bit. We, yeah, uh, that that's a good question. And thank God, no, it's not all going to be about Hudson. Um, I think we 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 stretched out as much Hudson as we possibly could have. And the the reason we did that is because there's so much. There's a lot of questions about him, but there are a lot of factors to his four voyages his four documented voyages that he took and it, there was just a lot of stuff that we felt it was important to analyze from a couple of different angles and that speaks to why the first four or five episodes they don't quite move forward as much as we would have liked because we really needed to we wanted to look closely at hudson from a, diff, a bunch of different angles and we're happy that after hudson <laughs> the the story tends to move forward a lot better, uh, I think, and we definitely the, the storytelling really sorts sort of starts to take off a little bit once we leave Hudson behind. But I think it's important to understand who he was and uh, the nebulosity of him and and all the question marks that still remain to this day. That's right. So we've pretty much left Hudson now and. When he returned to Europe. But in 1610, Hudson flies the English flag again and he sets out once more to find the Northwestern Passage, accompanied by his son and some other dudes that we've already met. And we can't wait to tell you all about that voyage in our next episode. Now, you will have to wait a bit until January 11th, in fact, where the podcast Island will be back with episode 6. And between then and now, we wish you. Fanificancy, happy holidays, and a safe and wonderful new year. Thank you so much for listening. Vedant. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research associate James Mallon for Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery on route to saying, wow, history is Cool. We'll see you next time. Folks, we want to thank you once again for listening, remind you to please listen in order, and tell you that we realize that there's a lot to digest on this untamed wild island of Manhattan. And for that very reason, we've set up an email just for you. 
So whenever you have a question, just email us at thepodcastisland at gmail.com. The Podcast Island, no caps, no punctuation, no spaces, at gmail.com. And you can also find that email address on our website, thepodcastisland.com. And last but not least, the weather outside is frightful, but the conversations in island voices are delightful. You can't miss Robert Cool Bell, co-founder of Cool and the Gang, or my good friend, film producer Mark Charty, producer of The Rookie, Secretariat, Miracle, and... American Underdog, coming to a theater near you this Christmas Day. I told you, history is cool, so climb aboard.